this event. Uh, my uh, introductory remarks will be brief, uh, one of which, of course, as always, please turn off your cell phone. <laughs> the Historian Worlds Collection has a number of annual programs, and uh, the Bill Russell Lecture next to our symposium, which completed its 16th presentation this past year, is the longest running of those. This is the 13th annual uh, Bill Russell Lecture, and um, I, I think it says a lot about the legacy that um, Bill Russell left in terms of the study of uh, American music, especially New Orleans jazz, uh, that the program has been able to sustain itself so effectively with the richness and depth of subjects that we are able to offer, that our performers and presenters are able to, uh, to get their teeth into, and of course, with your presence here, that makes it all uh, worthwhile. Uh, I want to say, um, for the record, we are videotaping this performance for archival purposes. It will not be distributed, but if for any reason you feel you don't want to be in a room where an event is being videotaped, um, now is the time to express that desire, and you can have your ticket refunded if, um, if, for whatever reason you don't want to do that. I'm obligated to say that. So, um, but to, to get to the program, uh, it's a combination of, uh, of dialogue and music. Uh, it will be uh, led in one level by Bruce Rayburn. Bruce Boyd Rayburn is, has his uh, doctor, doctoral degree from Tulane in 1991 for many years has been the curator of the William Ransom Program Jazz Archive on campus and is also the head of the Special Collections in the University. He is author of the recently published New Orleans Style and the Writing of American Jazz, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2009, and is the contributor to many, many journals and other magazine publications on a variety of subjects of New Orleans music. He's going to lead the program tonight, or lead it off, uh, on the um, legend, legendary career of Sidney Bechet. Thank you. Thank you, John, and also uh, a heartfelt thanks to Priscilla Lawrence for her invitation to bring this group here tonight. The 13th annual Bill Russell Lecture on Friday the 13th. I think that offers well. The concept for tonight's show was developed by two of the musicians uh, in the band, uh, Jerry Embry and Frankie Lynn. And so I'd like to begin the program by introducing the members of the band so that we'll all be on a first-name basis. So the leader of this ensemble and the soprano saxophonist, Mr. Jerry Embry. To his left, the inimitable Frankie Lynn on banjo. Our bass player tonight, Mr. Mark Brooks from an illustrious New Orleans musical family. And last but not least on drums, Mr. Barry Martin, who is the author of a book called Walking with Legends. When he was younger, he used to run with them, but now he walks. <laughs> Mr. Barry Martin. <laughs> 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 
So Frankie and Jerry thought out this idea, but we developed it as a team, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Sidney Bechet was born May 14, 1897, into a Creole household. And so he was the recipient of a, a great lineage that was Francophone, Catholic, and philosophically attuned to concepts of the rights of man associated with both the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. Creole culture was also intrinsically musical. Uh, Afro-French Creoles in New Orleans loved to dance, and they were uh, sophisticated musicians. They were almost all musically literate, and uh, this was a Eurocentric musical canon that they worked with. And there are, are numerous examples, the Lamberts, uh, Charles Lucien Lambert, uh, Victor Eugene McCarthy, for example. Uh, so they were contributing to Eurocentric music, but as we'll see tonight, uh, Sidney Bechet uh, took a different course. His family was actually a middle-class skilled family. His father, Omer, was a shoemaker. His grandfather, Jean Bechet, uh, had uh, property uh, over $3,000 in the 1850s, which was quite a tidy sum in the middle of the 19th century. And uh, Bechet, in other words, uh, grew up in a situation, was baptized in St. Augustine Church in Treme, in the Seventh Ward, that was conducive to a great heritage, except uh, one thing was changing, and that was race relations in New Orleans, which we'll get to in a minute. But when he was interviewed by Scoop Kennedy after World War II, there was one song that he mentioned as sort of representative in his memory of this Creole heritage and how much fun it was to dance. And Jerry, why don't you tell us what this song is, and maybe you can uh, play a little bit of it for us. This was a dance that was done as a freeze dance in New Orleans, meaning the band would stop and everyone would freeze, the band would resume, and then you'd get back into it. Jerry. Well, this number is called Les Onions, The Onions. Bichet would record this later on in his career after he had gone to France. It was a gold record for him in France. And so we'll do our version of it now. It's only
Bands like John Robichaux's, the Creole Orchestra of Musically Literate Musicians, was the past, but Bechet was attracted to the future. What he was responding to was the African-American vernacular coming from uptown musicians like Buddy Bolden, who was described as an intuitive musician with tremendous sex appeal at the beginning of the 20th century. The law was forcing uptown blacks and downtown Frenchmen together. The result of the Plessy decision in 1896 was that Creole was no longer allowed to be a separate status, but would henceforth be described as merely black. And so in most of the uh, theoretical explanations of jazz origins, the emphasis is always that these laws, the Jim Crow laws, forced Creole musicians away from their, their uh, musically literate background to become intuitive musicians. I think there's an alternative uh, explanation that needs to be put on the table, though, and that is that the power of the blues coming from the African-American vernacular is something that appealed to young people of all ethnic backgrounds in early New Orleans. They felt that as their own music, and Bechet was one of them. So uh, Bechet wasn't forced into anything because, frankly, if you know anything about his biography, you could never force that man to do anything. But he was attracted to Buddy Bolden, and yet, because he was a Creole, it was felt necessary that he get at least some musical training. And uh, one of those people that attempted that challenge was a man named George Baquet. And Barry's going to tell us a little bit about who he was. You have to wait a minute for this microphone to warm up. No, I'm serious. It takes a minute. Huh. Yeah, George Baquet. George Baquet was a... Uh, Oh, I don't know what you would call him. One of the original clarinet players that went up. I remember when they took that band and went uh, away up north? This is the band. This is the band, yeah. Uh, George Bankay in the third from the left in the top row. And um, he, in addition to uh, George Bankay, Big Eye Louis Nelson, Delisle, was one of Sydney's uh, teachers. But George Bankay is the one, I think, really taught him most everything because if you we're going to play one of the selections from the, uh, it was called the Spanier, Maxi Spanier, City Bache Big Four. And if you listen to that, there's a title on there, Upper Lazy River. And he sounds, Bache sounds exactly like Emil Barnes, who is uh, Bache's other student have you ever listened to that, Bruce? That's, that's quite unbelievable. You would think it was M.L. Barnes. So that leads me to believe that he was uh, his, his real teacher. So, so let's hear some. That's the plan.
Boucher had too much talent to be taught by only one teacher, and there are some interesting stories, for example, of when he tried to take instruction from another Creole educator who was very highly thought of, named Papa Louis Tio. And, and this is what Tio ended up saying is, no, 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 we do not bark like a dog or meow like a cat on the clarinet. <laughs> but he also took from another gentleman, in fact, the one that replaced George Baquet in the original Creole band when Baquet fell in love with someone and migrated to Philadelphia unexpectedly. And his name was Big Eye Louis Nelson DeLille. And uh, he had the unsavory task of trying to get Sidney to learn how to read music. And Sidney had a habit of leaving the method book behind every time that uh, he was given any homework. And so uh, it didn't really work out too well. But Big Eye Louis Nelson, uh, even though Sidney never did really learn how to read music very, very well, uh, was very impressed with his young student. And he, the way he put it was, he wouldn't learn notes, but he was my best scholar. <laughs> but almost every New Orleans musician started out this way. Frankie Lynn is now going to tell us a little bit about solfeggio, or solfege, uh, a form of uh, musical sight singing that uh, many musicians started with uh, in New Orleans. Yeah, this goes back to all of the clarinet players back in the, in the day. They, they, they used the solfage methods to, to learn how to so Even if they didn't have an instrument, they could learn how to read music. And how many people have seen uh, Julie Andrews and the Sound of Music? Remember a song that would do, you know, the, well, that's the solfage method right there. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. So uh, that's how, you know, I could go on and explain to you you know, the whole way it's used with the, uh, but like, for say, do, the D, D. You have D for uh, flat, you have do, and you have day for uh, sharp. So that's, that's how they would use the different forms of this for that, okay? And there was a, a famous, famous uh, clarinet player from New Orleans. His name was Irving Fasola, okay? His real name was Irving Pasternak, and he didn't like the name of his name. He didn't, he didn't think he could really be a valuable source with a name like that. So he took Fasolo. Irving Fasolo. That's how he got his name. So that's about, you know, as much as I can tell you right now. Back in the yeah. Well, Michelle actually got his first instrument when he was uh, about eight years old. And as you can see, in the hands of various trainers uh, and Solfege books and whatnot. He developed skills very rapidly, and he began hanging out with a group of musicians who were uh, pioneers. Uh, Clarence Williams, who you see on the far left, and seated between the two banjos, it is the violinist Armand Piron, set up a music publishing house, uh, Williams and Piron, on Tulane Avenue in 1915. And Sidney Bechet was in there all the time. And he would walk in with clarinets where the keys were held together by rubber bands and the musicians would start taking bets on he'll never be able to stay in tune and yet he'd be able to do it. And uh, one of the people that was there all the time who ended up uh, becoming the cornetist for Armand Piron uh, and his uh, novelty orchestra in the teens and 20s was Peter Bocage, a violinist and cornetist, and this is what he said about Bechet. 
He was always fiery. He's just a naturally fiery guy. It's his makeup. He don't sit still one minute. There's always something he's got to be doing. And when he plays, he's the same way. He's fired up all the time. Couldn't tell what key he was playing in, but you couldn't lose him. <laughs> well, the relationship with Clarence Williams actually became quite important because uh, by the time he's really in uh, his late teens, he's ready to hit the road. And the man that uh, takes him there is Clarence Williams. But uh, we're going to sort of set the theme with a piece of music that you would often find played uh, during what is frequently called a jazz funeral. And uh, it's something called Odundi Ramble, because we're going to be talking about all this rambling that Sidney Bechet did.
much. And Barry's got a good story that Bukaj told him about what they used to do at New Orleans jazz funerals. Well, yeah, in that first part, I don't know much went down, 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 all that kind of business. And uh, it had been gone a lot longer than we played it, though. It was gone sometimes two or three choruses like that. And Peter, who was, uh, how would we describe Peter Bocas? A conservative man, I guess. He wasn't no, uh, you know, uh, jive artist like many other musicians. He was very conservative, lived over 1006 Relax Street nowadays. And Peter said that what would happen, they would hire professional mourners. In other words, people who never knew the, 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 I mean the uh, body, the, the dead person, but they didn't know them at all, that they would come there and cry for money. You know, oh, good man, said there was an undertaker over in Algiers who would cut big onions and put them on the horse's eyes. That's what he told me. And Peter Bocas wasn't given to rhetoric. He was, so I believed whatever he said, you know. You know, I thought you would get a man out of that little bit. That's another kind of laser on Boucher's first trip outside New Orleans was in 1916 when he accompanied Clarence Williams on a tour that led them to Galveston, Texas, where they found themselves incarcerated overnight, surrounded by Mexicans. Sidney Boucher said that was the night that he learned about the blues. <laughs> but he didn't stop there. Here he is with Freddie Kepar who we've uh, already talked about a little bit, uh, in Chicago. He hooked up with a vaudeville company called Bruce and Bruce Stock Company, and by 1917, he was in Chicago. By the time the first jazz records were coming out by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, made in February 1917 in New York City, Boucher was pretty critical of those. He felt that those were poor imitations of the music that he was helping to develop. And uh, he and Jelly Roll Morton uh, had negative opinions of those first jazz records, but it also created in them the desire to make some records themselves to show people what New Orleans musicians could really do. And from Chicago, he migrated to New York City, where he fell in with a group of musicians that was bound for Europe, Will Marion Cook's Southern Syncopated Orchestra. And this is how jazz really comes to the attention of Europe for the first time in 1919 uh, in London. And so what we're going to do now is turn it over to Jerry, who's going to tell us a little bit about the reaction of the Swiss conductor and composer Ernst Ansermann. Ernst Ansermé was very influential, very well-known conductor, and he, he wrote the following review that was published in 1919, singling out Bichet. There is in the Southern Syncopated Orchestra an extraordinary clarinet virtuoso who is, so it seems, the first of his race to have composed perfectly formed blues on the clarinet. I've heard two of them, which he had elaborated at great length, then played to his companions so they could make up an accompaniment. Extremely different, they are equally admirable for their richness of invention, force of accent, 
and daring in novelty and the unexpected. Already, they gave the idea of a style, and their form was gripping, abrupt, harsh, with a brusque and pitiless ending, like that of Bach's second Brandenburg Concerto. I wish to set down the name of this artist of genius. As for myself, I shall never forget it. It is Sidney Bichet. Bravo, Jerry. And what song were they playing? They played a number called Characteristic Blue. Let's hear it.
unfortunately, while Sidney Bechet was in London, the sky did come falling down on him at some point. Frankie Lynn is going to tell us what happened. Well, Sidney Bechet, he had a temper that was legendary. In September of 1922, he was deported from England after uh, he was arrested for a brawl with some wild women in his hotel room. <laughs> he, got the, he got the order for that. And uh, it wasn't the first time the city would get in trouble with the law or with the uh, women. And we'll soon find that later in the program. But that's what the attempt went down. Well, he had to get out of town fast, in other words. And so he goes to France. Began a relationship that was going to have extreme significance for the rest of his life. Sidney Bechet was someone who really wanted recognition throughout his life. But Louis Armstrong was sort of the looming giant of the 1920s, and it was very hard for Bechet to go back and forth between Europe and the U.S. and establish himself sufficiently to really take on Armstrong, who had always been his main competitor, even when they were children in New Orleans. So this first trip to France really was just a taste. It was the beginning of something that would be extremely important in his future. But in 1923, he's back in New York City. And New York, along with Chicago, was becoming a focal point for the development of jazz in the early 1920s. And Bechet wanted to get in on that, obviously. And so he tried his luck as a band leader. Jerry, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was going on in New York and what it's like to try to start a band, to, to be a band leader in a competitive situation like what was happening in New York in the early 20s. We'll let Mark feel that one. All right. Well, let's say 1924, when Sidney Bechet returned to the States, he returned to New York. There he rekindled their friendship with his old friend Clarence Williams who in turn brought him into the recording scene of the OK Records label, where he was afforded the opportunity to play right next to Louis Armstrong, which earned him the reputation of being the jazz man, the only jazz man that could match musical brilliance with the great Louis Armstrong. And that's how he got into the scene in New York. So, he starts recording with Clarence Williams in 1923, and this is the beginning of a virtuoso artistry that would go on for decade after decade after decade. But we're going to start with the beginning and listen to a little bit of Wildcat Blues. And hey, Dr. Rainbow, before we play Wildcat Blues for you, I would like to uh, make note. Uh, I get a lot of questions about this instrument that I'm playing. Looks like a little baby saxophone, and indeed that's what it is. This is a soprano saxophone, and that's the instrument that Sidney later on will discover pretty much uh, defined as a jazz instrument. But earlier on, he was playing the clarinet. And if you see in, later in the pictures, maybe Bruce will point out the difference between a clarinet and a soprano sax. In case you're not interested, not to speak down to you, but the. You're thing. forgetting that I'm a drummer. <laughs> Very similar. Sidney plays a straight soprano and this is a curved soprano. It's the same instrument. The clarinet is in the same range and same general timber, but it's made out of wood. And, and given just one more point on what Jerry's elaborating, uh, why would he change from clarinet to soprano? And there was a very good reason for that. 
in the New Orleans Ensemble, the clarinet plays an obligato role. In other words, it supports what's going on with the trumpet or the cornet that handles the melody. Sidney Bechet was never comfortable with a secondary role on anything. And so what he did was upgrade his arsenal to an instrument that would allow him to compete for the lead with the trumpet and cornet player. So, you know, Sidney is always thinking, always working on how he's going to take control of that situation. And, of course, his relationship with Louis Armstrong over decades, this was something that played out again and again. So, Jerry, Wildcat Blues, let's hear it. Williams Blue 5 was the start of something, but Bechet quickly got himself a reputation as someone who loved to get into cutting contests. And Mark has already alluded 
to the fact that Armstrong was his main target. Frankie Lynn is going to tell us about some of the exchanges that occurred between the Clarence Williams Blue Five and the Red Onion Jazz Babies recordings made between December 1924 and January 1925 when Armstrong and Bechet had their duels. I'm going to go a little further back than that. I'm going to go back to, uh, in childhood, you know, Sidney Bechet was a product from the time he was a little, you know, young man. He played excellent. He played like a, like a grown man. You know, when he was 14 years old, he was probably the best clarinet player in town. <laughs> so he was years ahead of his time. And the guy comes up to Sidney Bechet and says, hey, I know a boy the neighborhood around, around the block, he says, he plays better than you play. Well, I want to meet that boy. So he takes him, and introduces him, and it's Louis Armstrong. So Sidney had himself a steady job. He had a, a job, it was at the, the Ivory Theater on Ray Street. He had a job there, and he paid $2. And he had he put together a band, and he got, gave uh, Louis Armstrong 50 cents, and he gave a drummer 50 cents. And he was a leader. He got a doll. You know? yeah. So he got, he, he got the leaders thing. So they went and they played the first job. And uh, they played the high society. And the cornet part, the, where they played the piccolo part, uh, Louis Armstrong played it on the trumpet. So he really impressed uh, Sidney Bichette. And uh, after that, they also had a job where they were going around on furniture trucks uh, advertising for boxing on Saturday night. You know, that, those are the kind of jobs they had back then. And then years later, when they were doing the Red Onion stuff and all that stuff, you know, it, it was very competitive because even from a young child, that, that's when now all that, that started, you know, between each other. And they could go toe-to-toe with each other like nobody in the world could do it, you know. They were the two best at what they did, you know. A lot of people like to say there was a lot of jealousy there and stuff like that. But Sidney said, you know, he said, he's a, he's a great musician here. That's what he called a musician here. He said he was a great musician there, and he said, I like them fine. That's what he said about them. But, uh, you know, uh, cakewalking babies and stuff, some people might say that Sidney got the best of them. And the later recordings, they might say, Louie got the best of them. But that's, you know, I mean, that's up to who's ever listening to the recording. But they were both great in their own way. You know, so that's about it. Let's hear some cakewalking babies from home. Cakewalking babies. And this song is about a couple of dancers. They used to dance the cakewalk. And when the, the winner of the cakewalking contest, the dancers would all compete to see who the best dance couples were. And this is an old, old dance. And whoever, the winner, the couple would win, and they would win a freshly baked cake. And they would say, they take the cake. That really takes the cake. <laughs> cakewalking babies from home.
The show was making a mark as a recording artist, but he was...